Family farms and industrial farms. What goes on behind closed doors? Are they really that bad for the environment? And how can you eat meat and still be sustainable? Thanks for tuning in. I'm Valentina and welcome to another day in my life without plastic. Well, hello, hello again. Welcome to another beautiful, beautiful Tuesday. Today, we're going to continue the topic from last week, vegan versus local farm meat. Which one's better for you and for the environment? Today, specifically, we'll be talking about farms and animal products. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, make sure to check it out. It will help you understand veganism, When did the whole movement start? How have we as a society understood veganism throughout history? And also, some spicy conspiracy theories about the whole movement. But today is part two of this topic, and I'll be sharing with you all the details about the other side of the story. What goes on behind closed doors in the farms? The good, the bad, the ugly, everything you need to know. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of the entire debate and you can decide for yourself what lifestyle suits your personality better. But before we get started, I do have to say my little disclaimer again, in case you've missed it last episode. I really believe that there's no right way to eat. I think that our food is our personal choice. We decide what lifestyle we want to follow. I really think that we can't force our own lifestyle on anyone else and we really can't be mad at people for choosing to be vegan or to eat meat. Instead, we should just talk about our differences, we should talk about why we chose our own personal lifestyle, but really try to stay away from imposing it on anyone else. So please don't take this episode specifically as my way of telling you not to eat meat. This is definitely not my intention. I'm simply trying to educate you on what goes on behind closed doors in the farms and what really happens in industrial farms and in family farms. All right, we've got so many things to talk about. So where do we even begin? Well, before jumping back in time, let me first point out something. So today you're going to hear me say a lot the word agriculture. And oftentimes, people only associate agriculture with crops. But in fact, animals are part of what we consider agriculture as well. Animal agriculture is the practice of breeding animals for the production of animal products. In everyday life, animal agriculture links to our demand for meat. But this can also mean things like clothes, fabrics, and other things um, produced from animals. Alright, now that we got this out of the way. We're ready to go in the time machine. Buckle up, because we're going 10,000 years in the past. So, back in the days, humans lived a nomadic lifestyle, moving with the seasons to follow the food supply. And we were classified as hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherer societies would have known which crops were best to exploit with each season. And it is likely that it developed into a semi-nomadic lifestyle where people simply would set up camps for several years at a time before moving to their next location. It is also likely 
that they had herds of livestock that they would take with them wherever they moved, and they would keep them secure to use for milk, meat, fur, and other resources. Again, we touched base on this last episode. Back in the days when we talked about farming, we didn't really talk about animals simply being used for meat. They were much more valuable than that, and a simple farmer wouldn't want to just slaughter the entire livestock when they could actually produce so many more products than just meat. But when we look back in history, we can see that domestic pigs had actually multiple centers of origin in Euro-Asia, including Europe, East Asia, and Southwest Asia. Pigs were first domesticated about 10,500 years ago. Sheep were domesticated in Mesopotamia between 11,000 BCE and 9,000 BCE. Cattle were domesticated in the areas of modern Turkey and Pakistan around 8,500 BCE. And another fun thing I found is that bees were actually kept for honey in the Middle East around 7,000 BCE. Camels were domesticated late, around 3,000 BC. So as you see, animals and what we call livestock have really been around for tens of thousands of years. Egyptians were among the first people to practice agriculture on a large scale. Early civilization can be considered a boom time in agricultural science and technology. Around 5500 BC, the Sumerian civilization of the Middle East and other early pre-Greek and Roman civilizations understood the need for a specialized agricultural workforce in order for their societies to actually thrive. And it's actually really interesting to look into Greeks and Romans in particular because they took much of their agricultural technology from other civilizations with which they had contact, and most notably those of the ancient Near East, such as Mesopotamia, Sumeria, and so on. From Egypt, those societies took direct influence once the country was conquered by Alexander the Great and later by the Roman Republic. It was here at the birth of modern civilization that we saw true large-scale animal and plant agriculture. Technology may not have been advanced a great deal, but the processes made agriculture efficient enough to sustain the empire's large cities, making it a necessary industry. The Middle East continued to see much innovation in the agricultural industries and something that historians refer to as the Arab Agriculture Revolution. And this was also partially thanks to the diversity of different crops that later acted as trade between the Far East and Europe. But when we look at mass agricultural practices in North America, we can see that they weren't really particularly present here until the arrival of European colonists. And it's also certainly not true that Native Americans had no agriculture whatsoever. Actually, there is evidence for some limited agricultural practices. But it was not universal across the tribes. Some tribes were completely nomadic and some were largely static. They were not geographical either. Some tribes in the East had completely domesticated crops. When we look at some southwestern states, specifically Arizona and New Mexico, 
we see agriculture on an industrial scale, especially the cultivation of maize crops that were introduced from modern Mexico. So, because of all of this, it is likely that agriculture came to North America relatively late, perhaps between 2500 and 2000 BCE. In Mesoamerica and South America, however, with the Inca, the Maya, Olmecs, and the Aztecs, relatively early development of agriculture permitted the building of enormous cities that impressed the European colonizers. And it was quickly identified that these civilizations had an impressive agriculture-based economy that stood on par with Europe, challenging what was then understood about the development of civilization. In Mesoamerica, it was the corn, and in South America, the very humble potato. Modern farming began around the 18th century in what is generally referred to as the British Agricultural Revolution. And the reason for all of this happening was primarily several advances and changes that were made to farming in a very short space of time. And obviously farmers saw massive increases in yield and a more effective process. It is said that these changes permitted the Industrial Revolution and even greater concentration of urban development, fueling the empire. And how so? Well, more crops for fewer workers, better methods of keeping and replacing nutrients in the soil meant that more people could work in the industry. So this is it, folks. Tens of thousands of years of relatively balanced farming living with animals in harmony and understanding and appreciating their values to then only start factory farms. So what changed? How did we go from this to industrial farming? Well, people had to find a way to feed their communities without moving. Society started trading and didn't have to rely on seasonal crops anymore. The population kept on growing steadily and they were just more moths to feed. I think we can safely say that things just got a little out of hand. In the United States, farms were generally small to medium-sized, and animals roamed freely around the farmer's land. Farmers began fencing in their livestock in the late 1800s, and in the late 1920s, poultry, or basically chicken, became the first large-scale farmed animal. For nearly 50 years, chickens were the only factory farmed animals. They were brought inside a farm and raised in large numbers for egg production and eventual slaughter. In the 1970s, pig farmers decided that pigs were also a good option for industrial farming and mass production, and they began shifting to factory farming. Cow farmers followed soon thereafter, and when I say things got a little out of hand, I really mean that. Today, roughly 94% of all animals farmed for human consumption are raised on factory farms. Just think about it, 94% of all animals that we consume are raised on factory farms, so I think it's safe to say things got out of hand. This type of farming operation is often referred to as a concentrated animal feeding operation. And the goal is really to optimize space and obviously optimize profit. So 
What exactly are factory farms? As defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a factory farm is a large industrialized farm, especially a farm in which large number of livestock are raised indoors in conditions intended to maximize production at minimal cost. The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals defines a factory farm as a large industrial operation that raises large numbers of animals for food with a primary focus on profit and efficiency at the expense of animal welfare. The very definition of factory farming is inclusive of animal cruelty and abuse. And you're going to see that the legislation relating to this industry has been tailored to allow this cruelty and abuse to continue. By now, it's no secret what goes behind closed doors in those factory farms. We know how animals are kept, how they're slaughtered. There's tons of resources and research out there. So I'm not going to go on and continue repeating myself about that. But one thing I do want to point out is that there are actually no federal laws protecting animals on factory farms. There are two federal laws that are designed to protect factory farmed animals, but only in the context of transport and slaughter. Both laws exclude chicken, and the Humane Methods of Livestock Slaughter Act exempts practices of religious slaughter, such as kosher and halal. The 28-hour law requires animals being transported via ground methods, such as trucking, to be unloaded for food, water, and rest every 28 hours. The Humane Methods of Livestock Slaughter Act requires that animals be properly rendered incapable of feeling pain prior to slaughter. Both acts have proven difficult to monitor, enforce, and prosecute resulting violations. States also have the power to legislate on behalf of factory farmed animals although most states' laws exclude farm animals from the animal cruelty laws. So as you see, it's a very difficult situation in regards to the legal aspect, because while there are laws protecting animals from being abused, oftentimes those same laws exempt factory farmed animals. I do want to point out that there are some state laws that have been successfully used to prosecute those who abuse and neglect farmed animals. And I'm going to share with you a few cases as an example of how farmed animal abusers are being brought to justice under state animal cruelty laws. In 2012, for example, there was a case where three workers at Idaho Betancourt Dairy, a Burger King supplier, actually, uh, so those three workers were charged with misdemeanor animal cruelty for abuse of cows at the facility. A 2015 Tennessee case has led to the investigation of workers at TNS Farm, a Tyson and McDonald's supplier, for animal cruelty against their chickens. In another 2015 case, workers at North Carolina's Dee's Farm, a Purdue supplier, were arrested on criminal charges of animal abuse after an undercover video surfaced showing extreme cruelty and neglect towards the chickens being raised there. Now, why is this so important? Those are only a few cases, and obviously, a tons more of cases go unnoticed. 
But the reason those cases go noticed is because people start protesting. Undercover videos show up and bring more awareness, point out what's actually happening. But actually, there is a legislation designed to discourage, silence, and punish whistleblowing on factory farms. These laws target specifically employees and undercover investigators who seek to uncover and expose cruelty, abuse, and food safety violations. Those laws initially criminalized videotaping inside of a factory farm, but have since been expanded to make it illegal to provide misinformation on a job application. That means that if you're an undercover reporter who wants to expose what happens inside the factory farm, you can't lie on your job application. It's actually punishable by law. It basically makes it almost impossible for an undercover investigator to get a job at a factory farm without violating the law. Undercover investigations have uncovered countless cases of animal abuse and food safety violations. And without access to factory farms, the public remains blind to what goes behind the you know, windowless walls of these facilities. Likewise, without undercover investigations exposing these violations, animal abuse goes unpunished and food safety issues go unresolved. So I think it's safe to say that the law is not really on the side of factory farmed animals. And obviously, in my personal opinion, the biggest problem of all is animal cruelty when we talk about factory farms. Yes, there are environmental issues. Yes, there's so many other problems there. But animal cruelty is at the core of it all. Factory farms are designed to be low cost with maximum output. They don't treat animal as living beings. They simply treat them as something something that brings profit. And the result is sadly often hundreds of thousands of animals confined to dark, cramped, poorly ventilated areas without access to fresh air, sunlight, or grass while being held in close proximity to other animals. These animals often develop health issues as well as physical and mental problems. Employees there are also very often overworked and undertrained, and all of this results in just mishandling and mistreating the animals, even if it's unintentionally. For example, in the pig farming industry, baby pigs are castrated. Their tails are docked. Their tusks are clipped without any painkillers. Female cows, for example, in the dairy industry are forcibly impregnated. And male cows are taken from their mothers, often at birth, to be fattened and slaughtered for veal. And the sad part is that standard industry practices such as these are accepted and actually even protected under law. And just to highlight how cruel factory farms are, here are some things to consider. Imagine this, 8 by 10 inches, or 20 by 25 centimeters. This is the amount of space in which caged egg-laying hens spend their entire life, unable to spread their wings. Think about this, 800 25,000. 825,000. This is the number of chickens 
accidentally boiled and drowned alive during slaughter every year in the United States. 2 by 6.6 feet, or in other words, 60 centimeters by 2 meters. That's the average size of a cage in which a breeding pig spends most of its life. And I mentioned this last episode, but it's so gruesome that I had to highlight it again. 14 billion animals die to simply become discarded retail meat because of our food waste. I'm just going to leave it at that. I mean, factory farms are cruel. Um, Slaughtering animals is just disgusting in my opinion. The way we approach it is just horrifying. And I think it tells a lot about us as humans. So I don't think that I need to dwell too much on all of these facts. I think that it's obvious. In my opinion, it's obvious. In my opinion, you don't even need to do so much research to see how obvious it is. It's literally everywhere. All you need to do is open your eyes and you're going to see the impact it has. And of course, animal cruelty is not the only bad thing about industrial farming. The environment is also tremendously affected by it. I know we spoke about this in the last episode a little bit, so I'm just going to quickly summarize what I was already talking about. Factory farming is a major contributor to water and air pollution, as well as deforestation. Factory farmed animals produce more than 1 million tons of manure every day. The animal waste often contains undigested antibiotics, which are given to the livestock to prevent the spread of disease in their confined living conditions. And this waste is usually stored in large open-air lagoons which are essentially lakes full of animal waste. These lagoons can leak and spill, often during times of flooding, and have actually spilled over into other water bodies, contaminating them and killing their fish populations. The lagoons are often emptied using a spraying system in which the waste is applied to nearby fields. This can contaminate local water supplies as well, reaching neighboring populations physically and obviously emitting harmful gases. Likewise, livestock release methane gas during their digestion process. For this reason, factory farms serve as concentrated sources of methane gas emissions. Land and rainforests are cleared to allow livestock to gaze and to be raised. And there's also a need for land to be used for crops to feed the animals raised on factory farms. And obviously, there's a major draw on our water supply to grow those crops, providing the animal with drinking water and to clean the farms, slaughterhouses and the transport trucks. The level of greenhouse gas emission from livestock is a substantial chunk of the total emissions, about 14.5% of the total man-made emissions, identifying it as one of the most important sources of greenhouse gases to reduce. The most shocking part of this fact is when you compare it to emissions from transportation in the form of all the world's cars, planes, boats, trains, all of the different forms of transportation. The meat trade is responsible for an equivalent amount of emissions to all of these combined. And this is not to say that a plant-based diet solves the problem entirely. 
Last episode, we talked about how even a vegan diet can have negative impact on the environment. But there's still one thing we need to consider. While agriculture in general, including the production of plant-based foods, is a source for pollution due to fertilizers, pesticides, and other factors, the fact that 30% of all crops are ultimately fed to livestock means that meat takes a substantial proportion of the blame. Okay, but what can we do, right? In this podcast, we're focusing on solving the problems, not just highlighting them. We know about the animal cruelty. We know about the environmental impact. So what can we do? Go vegan? Yes, that is an option. You could go vegan or vegetarian. But I know for a fact a lot of people don't really believe they can change their lifestyle this drastically. And I don't blame them for it. I mean, again, just like I mentioned in the beginning, everyone chooses their own lifestyle and we shouldn't impose on them to follow our lifestyle. But is it still possible for you to continue eating meat while helping the environment and also animal welfare? Let's take a look at a couple of things you could do to improve your lifestyle, even if you continue eating meat. And I want to highlight a few things that you could literally do today that can make a very big difference. So the first thing you can do is only purchase the amount of meat that your family is certain to eat. Again, American consumers throw away 21.7% of the meat they purchase. That's just needlessly killing billions of animals, right? So, of course, this also has an incredibly negative impact on the environment because all of these animals were factory-raised just to be slaughtered, of course, negatively impacting the environment and having tremendous uh, negative impacts on animal welfare as well, just to be then discarded as trash, as food waste. So, stop stocking up your freezer with countless amount of meat and instead try purchasing only what you're certain you will eat. Now, of course, this doesn't mean throw out what you have and start over. This is literally against what sustainability stands for. Of course, first, consume everything you have in your freezer. And that's another thing that you can pay attention to. Don't buy anything new if you already have some meat in your freezer, right? Like, don't buy more chicken if you already have chicken fillets in your freezer. But when you come to the point that you're basically done with everything you had in stock, next time you go to the supermarket, only purchase fresh meat and store it in your fridge instead. Storing meat in your fridge is going to automatically force you to only buy what you're going to eat same day or perhaps next day. Because of that, you're going to refuse buying large quantities because you wouldn't want your meat to get spoiled. So, first, finish the meat you have before continuing to buy the next one. The second thing you can do is you can start opting in for products from animals that haven't been tortured. So when purchasing meat, eggs, or dairy products, look for obvious animal welfare labeling on the packaging. 
I'm gonna talk about some labeling issues in a few, so stay tuned for that. But in general, do pay attention to what the packaging says. Choose what type of meat you want to eat based on how convenient it is for you to find it from farms that don't torture animals. Maybe chicken is the easiest meat for you to find, and maybe it's better for you to consume more chicken than beef. So, pay attention to what the packaging says. Of course, we're going to talk about how to research and be for sure that the packaging is right and it's not lying to you. But pay attention to it and choose, if possible, a product that comes from a farm that takes actual good care of their animals. Now, one thing that I want to point out is also that it kind of goes hand in hand with this point, but part of this transformation process, if I can call it that, is to also learn to refuse certain things. For example, a good way to start is to give up entirely veal and foie gras. Those are the most gruesome slaughterings happening. Let me explain to you why. So, I don't know if you know this, but foie gras is basically duck liver or sometimes geese liver. And the way the ducks are being treated in those farms is beyond cruel. Like, cruel is not even a word describing this process. It goes so much beyond it. They literally stick a metal tube down their throats several times a day to force feed them so that their liver grows much larger than it naturally would. Ducks are stuck in cages where they can't even move, let alone lift their wings. They're deprived of their natural instincts of swimming, flying, socializing. The birds can't clean themselves properly either because they can't reach their bodies with their beaks and because of how small the cages are. It is just so cruel that actually 15 countries have banned the production of foie gras. The US is not one of them. Very few states have laws, somehow very little regulating uh, the production, but it is not entirely banned in any of the states here. And similar story goes for the production of veal. Baby cows that are actually destined to become veal, spend most of their 8 to 16 week lives. This is how long they, they live, just between 8 and 16 weeks. And they spend their short life confined to small wooden or metal cages known as veal crates. And this prison, basically, is barely larger than the, uh, you know, the, the baby cow's body. And it's obviously too small for the animal to even turn around. Calves are also sometimes tethered so that they don't move around too much, which keeps the flesh tender. So the less they move, the tender the flesh is. And fortunately, veal crates have been banned in some states, including California, Arizona, and Maine. But that definitely doesn't even, it doesn't even touch the problem. Veal is meat that comes from the flesh of a slaughtered young cow. It is known for being pale and tender, which is the result of the animal being confined and anemic. Typically, instead of living on his mother's milk, the calves are fed on a synthetic uh, formula that is intentionally low on iron, 
to keep the animal anemic and keep the flesh pale. So, for example, in cases like this, I truly don't believe that you have to continue purchasing those products. If you want to eat beef, eat beef. But eating veal is just, it's a whole different level of cruelty. Foie gras is just someone wanting to be fancy and not really caring at all what happens behind that product. And again, I'm nobody to judge your lifestyle choices, but I really think that if we all made small efforts, we would see huge changes. And if we know that factory farming is a great issue, then why not make those changes? We're not talking about completely changing your lifestyle and becoming vegan or vegetarian. We're simply talking about choosing the right product, making conscious choices where your products are coming from, just like we talked about veganism. Not just being vegan and eating a salad, right? But also making conscious choices of how healthy is this for me? Where do those products come from? How much is my environmental footprint still? So just because I'm vegan doesn't mean that I'm supporting the environment, right? I still need to make conscious choices every single day. And the same goes for meat eaters. If I'm eating meat, I need to make conscious choices every single day. Where does the meat come from or any other animal products that I'm purchasing? What are the consequences of it? What are the impacts? And how can I be part of the solution? Another very effective way of supporting this cause is actually eliminating one animal product from one meal each day. So just challenge yourself. Drop the sausage at breakfast. Drop the grilled chicken from your salad. Or drop your bacon from that sandwich you're eating. You know, just make small changes. It's not necessarily said, again, to completely entirely drop all animal products. But um, just make small changes. You know, I've heard so many people say, oh gosh, I wish I was vegan, but I just love cheese so much. And when I say people, that's me. I've heard myself saying that. (laughs) I would want to be vegan. Honestly, not because of the environment, but because of animal cruelty. My ultimate goal in life would be to be vegan. But I just simply can't. I love cheese so much. But you know, a lot of people have the same opinion as me. They say they can't fully commit to a vegan diet because of certain products that they enjoy way too much. But then just just don't drop them, right? Like drop everything else you could. If you're not big on milk, drop milk. If you're not big on eggs, drop eggs. I know plenty of people who just never really liked eating eggs. I know plenty of people who never really enjoyed eating meat. So drop it, you know, just make a conscious choice to drop it and continue consuming the products that you actually love and absolutely don't want to um, refuse from from your diet. But, you know, those stereotypes of you have to be 100% vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or flexitarian, all of these labels that we've developed just classify us, just put us like in different little drawers instead of working together to solve this big problem. In fact, the only thing we need to keep in mind is that whenever we practice ethical meat consumption, we also help the environment. So as you see, there's so many ways you can try and reduce 
the amount of meat that you consume. You can try purchasing meat and animal products from sustainable and ethical suppliers. You can choose meat either fed on locally produced crops or grass-fed. And those are all great approaches in supporting the environment and the animal welfare while still consuming meat. But let's take a look at how supporting family farms is actually so much better than supporting industrial farms. So I'm just going to compare a couple of different categories. So first, health issues. On family farms, foods are produced without the use of pesticides, hormones, antibiotics, and other hazardous inputs. And obviously, industrial farms are known for the overuse of antibiotics, which also leads to antibiotic resistance, and then they have to develop even stronger antibiotics to be used for the animals. When we talk about environmental issues, sustainable farms recognize the importance of protecting the natural environment and act as stewards of the, of the land. And industrial facilities contribute to numerous environmental issues, such as damage to our air, water, and soil. When we talk about animal waste, well, sustainable farms only raise what the land is capable of handling. Right? The farmers use manure or composted manure as fertilizer for crops, which reduces or eliminates the need for commercial fertilizers and chemicals to be used. So that's drastically different than industrial farms. The water waste issue. Sustainable farms protect water sources and conserve water. And I've talked plenty already about industrial farms and how bad they are for water supply. The same goes with soil issues. Sustainable farms apply animal manure at a rate that the land can handle, right? So they don't overuse soil. Again, talking about hormone issues, that's a very popular one. Mostly, for the most part, family farms don't use hormones. Another very big issue, genetic diversity. So sustainable farms help preserve genetic diversity by raising a wide range of animal breeds, whereas industrial farms usually only raise selected number of breeds that are most popular and most profitable. And of course, my absolute uh, most important part of this issue is animal welfare and sustainably raised animals are usually treated humanely and are also permitted to carry out natural behaviors, whether that's swimming, laying in the dirt, flying, all of that. And then when we look at how employees um, are affected by this issue, well, on a sustainable farm, um, owners provide a very safe working environment, whereas on industrial farms, workers are exposed to also very poor air quality because the places where all of these mass number of animals are kept are also poorly ventilated. So the list goes on and on. Those are just some examples of how family farms are so much more sustainable and ethical than industrial farms. But you know what? We've talked about the history of agriculture. We've talked about animal welfare and the environment. So now it's time for some conspiracy tea. Let's see what we can spill today. And you know what? The biggest thing that I had to start with, I mean, I just had to point it out. It's literally the biggest conspiracy theory that's been around ever since I know myself. And this is KFC. 
I feel like everyone at this point has heard it. The conspiracy theory claims that the government forced KFC to stop using the word chicken in their name because they serve meat uh, derived from mutant animals. And I actually found what KFC says on their official website about it. Yes, they actually have a page dedicated to this conspiracy theory. And they say KFC uses real Canadian chicken. Pass it on. Making great fried chicken always starts with great chicken. Common sense, right? Which is why KFC serves up real Canadian farm-raised chickens with no added hormones or steroids. The very same chicken you would find at your local grocery store, prepared fresh in small batches throughout the day. But you may have heard otherwise. A vicious rumor has been spreading since the 90s, claiming that KFC grows mutant chickens with eight legs, no beaks, and plumped up with enough growth hormones to, to send them toppling over. Unfortunately, some people actually believe this nonsense, and a few still do. But even they may be surprised to learn where this urban legend actually started. An email chain. So Casey claims that the same people who started the Nigerian prince scam also started the KFC conspiracy. I'm not going to go into too much detail. It's pretty simple. The conspiracy is that they don't use real chicken or that basically they've pumped up their chickens with so many hormones and steroids that it's not, it just can't be considered real chicken anymore. Now, technically, the conspiracy has been officially fact-checked as false, but you know, it's still conspiracy. Is there some truth to it? I don't know. I haven't been to their farms. I can't tell you. I don't necessarily believe in mutant chickens, um, but is, is it possible they're using steroids and hormones to grow their chickens bigger? I think it is. I mean, they say they're not doing it, but that's not an outrageous possibility. And it's easy to say that their chickens are raised on a farm, but a farm can mean so many things nowadays. As you've seen in this episode, it can range from family farm to literally the most brutal and cruel factory farms. Which brings me to my second conspiracy theory, which it's not really a conspiracy. In my opinion, it's actually a fact. Companies often bank on the fact that people generally don't do research. Consumers are gullible. They smack labels on their products to make people feel better about themselves. But not everyone truly knows what those labels mean. So I'm here to translate them for you. Let's take a look at those labels. So when you see something that says antibiotic-free, routine feeding of antibiotics is common in industrial farms, as we've already talked about. And it's also important to keep in mind that antibiotic-free is not an approved claim because the USDA cannot verify that any product contains no antibiotic residue. So no antibiotics administered, no antibiotics added, and raised without antibiotics are claims allowed by the USDA if producers provide documentation showing that antibiotics were not introduced at any point in the animal's life. So if you see something that says no antibiotics added, for example, it is something that technically could be traced back and proved. But if it just says antibiotic free, there's no way to prove that there's no antibiotic residue in the product, if that makes sense. So it sounds very similar, but one can be somewhat proven and another one is purely a label. 
Another label you probably see often on eggs is cage-free and you go for it and grab the eggs that are $3 more expensive just because it says cage-free. But actually, cage-free does not provide specifications or requirements on how chickens are treated more humanely. What it simply means is that they're not inside cages and in some cases they don't even have access to the outside world. They're, they're still stuck inside a farm, indoors, just not inside cages. Then we also have free range. Most farm animals are housed entirely indoors, so the USDA requires producers using free range or free roaming claims to demonstrate that animals have access to the outdoors. But again, size, quality, and length of the access to the outdoor space is unregulated. So they can literally just go out for five minutes and qualify technically as free range. For products from animals raised outdoors with adequate space, you need to look for animal welfare approved or global animal partnership or certified humane egg or poultry products that also say free range. So if you see a combination of those two, then for sure the chickens have had quality time outdoors and were actually raised um, in adequate spaces. Another one that you need to be careful about is humane or like humanely raised, humanely handled. So the USDA actually doesn't define those terms and it lets uh, producers have their own definitions, which can mean that literally it can mean anything. I mean, it doesn't assure the animal welfare and lastly, uh, pasture-raised or pasture-grown or just pastured, those are only loosely regulated by the USDA. This results in widely varying interpretations and animals sometimes spending very little time on pasture. For products uh, from animals raised on pasture for their entire lives, look for a pasture-raised claim that is backed up by one of the certificate labels that I mentioned. I'm going to link this website um, in my blog, so make sure to check it out and you can see more details about the labels. All right, last one. I promise this is the last theory I wanted to share. It's actually on PETA's website, so I'm just going to read a little bit from it. How Big Dairy and Big Brother have duped you for decades. Well, this um, article overall talks about tracing Big Dairy's roots back to World War I, when our government created a huge demand for powdered and canned milk to send overseas to soldiers. By the time the war inevitably ended, many farmers had abandoned other crop production and invested everything they had into the dairy industry. The problem was so big that the US government started buying up America's unwanted cow's milk. It was pushed on schools, the military and other countries, mostly as aid. But most of the nation's unwanted milk set rotting in massive underground storage facilities. And by the 1980s, the government was spending $2 billion a year on unwanted milk. Um, this article, I'm going to link it again in my blog post. So if you want, you can read through it. But basically talks about how the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the same agency that is in charge of our country's nutritional guidelines, is also in charge of multi-million dollar advertising campaign designed to push cow's milk onto the public. Remember gut milk? All these cheesy, catchy phrases? Yeah, the USDA approved daily, uh, dairy propaganda. And, you know, um, I always say take conspiracy theories 
with a pinch of salt. But it's funny because I grew up in Europe and I don't remember drinking milk like that. For me, yes, yogurt and cheese have always been part of my diet, but actual milk. I usually only use it for cooking. And it was actually when I moved to the United States when I first saw people drinking milk straight out of the bottle, like dipping cookies in milk and so on. So I had never done that before. So of course, um, I can see how what PETA is claiming can have some truth to it. Does the government or not, not just the government, maybe other specific companies uh, try to use some sort of propaganda to make people consume more dairy? Maybe, maybe it's a possibility. For me specifically, it was a big cultural shock when I moved here and I saw how people consumed milk so much. (laughs) All right, people, this is it for today. I think that I gave you enough details about farms, about family farms, industrial farms, the background of farming, the cruelty of farming. I really hope I didn't scare you too much. I genuinely just want you to make your own conclusion and decision for your own lifestyle. Uh, I hope that this episode made you realize that going vegan isn't the only way to help the environment. While it's one of the best ways to approach the problem, the very real problem of climate change requires us to be a bit more pragmatic. And um, if you still want to enjoy meat, you don't need to feel guilty about it. But if you also care about the environment, you have to make some adjustments to your diet. The more you do, the better. But doing something is substantially better than doing absolutely nothing. So thank you so much for tuning in. Definitely stay tuned for next week's episode. I'll be sharing with you all the sustainable things in our lives that we don't realize are actually sustainable. We'll be debunking the myth that you need to buy tons of fancy gadgets to be sustainable and see how you can live an eco-friendly lifestyle without breaking the bank. Well, see y'all next Tuesday. Bye!